With episode 66 of the Silly Goose Gang podcast. And we're genuinely delighted to be joined today by Bob Hamer, uh, who spent 26 years um, as an FBI special agent and also a United States Marine Corps uh, veteran. So, Bob, thank you very much for taking the time to join us uh, this afternoon or this evening, our time. Hey, thanks for having me. I, actually, my wife is disappointed that this wasn't live and you weren't going to fly me over. Uh, to, to do this if, in studio, but if, uh, you know, next time, it is. next next time, uh, you know, if if you and the wife are ever in Scotland, yeah, absolutely, let's uh, let's let's do something. Um, <laughs> uh, that'd be cool. Um, yeah, we actually we actually have a list of people um, from the podcast, uh, Americans who who are all promising to to say hello to us if they you know if they if they come over. So uh, that that might be quite hilarious. But um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been. An interesting life um, that you've led to this point, uh, 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 Bob. So, um, yeah, what, what's uh, what's your your actual background? Where, where does the uh, the journey to this roller coaster begin? Yeah, you know, I was I was really fortunate. I uh, I don't talk about this too much, but I I actually went to law school. So I was a lawyer. Uh, had been in the Marine Corps for four years as a judge advocate. So that was a lawyer in the Marine Corps. Uh, we used to laugh that when you were a lawyer in the Marine Corps, you began as a defense counsel. And then when you got good enough, they made you a prosecutor. So I, I had about 150 trials, everything from unauthorized absence to murder, but yeah. it wasn't very exciting. Uh, and I, look, I grew up in a, in a TV generation and I just thought all the courtrooms were Perry Mason and all the legal shows that you see that it was it was that exciting and the courtroom really held no excitement at all for me every single case came down to is the search legal is the was the uh, confession done in a proper way it was all procedural issues and they were never whodunits and I was just looking for something more exciting literally tried to get into the CIA, uh, thought everything was going well, and then scored a zero on a personality test that they gave me. Uh, that when they scored from zero to 10, and I scored a 10, I mean, I scored a zero. And, uh, but the FBI, uh, back then, the FBI really liked lawyers and accountants. And because I had my law degree, I was able to get into the FBI. And it really was as you said, Chris, it, it was a roller coaster ride. Mm. 26 years. I can honestly say I had bad days. I mean, I had very bad days, but I never had a day that I thought, oh, why did I take this job? Why didn't I listen to my grandmother and, you know, go work in, in a manufacturing plant somewhere? Yeah. But uh, it was great. I, I spent much of my career undercover. So, um, my wife and I have been married 47 years, and I say she's the same sweet girl that I married, but I've been like a dozen different personalities. So mm. how cool is that? She's been she's been involved in multiple marriages. <laughs> she's been married to a contract killer and a residential burglar and a, a white-collar criminal, an international arms dealer, a pedophile. Just, this gets interesting. <laughs> I, hope she, I hope she doesn't tell her friends this. 
<laughs> there were times sometimes she'd go, you know, I don't like you playing this contract killer. And I said, God, I'm going to be a pedophile next week for crying out loud. You know, <laughs> give me a break. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's. Of course, you you pronounce it pedophile, don't you? Pedophile. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's something that we we. Oh man, I don't think there's enough hatred in the world for those those kind of uh, assholes. But um, yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, how how do you how do you deal just with knowing that that's what you're going into? How do you how do you approach that? You know, it's it's funny, Chris. It it really was my most difficult undercover assignment, and it it wasn't from a danger standpoint. I mean, I've I've been shot at. I've shot people. Been in fights, that type of thing. Uh, but this was when I infiltrated the group, and it's called NAMBLA. It's the North American Man Boy Love Association. It was a group of men who were sexually attracted to boys. Uh, when I when I got involved in that, it was a completely different mindset. So if if you if someone is trying to hire me to be a, thinking I'm a contract killer. They really don't care whether I like cricket or the ballet. They want to know whether they believe I'm capable of, of killing the person they want killed. So it, it never got into my politics, my religion, uh, anything like that. But when, when I got involved in NAMBLA, this was a completely different mindset. I had to think like them. I had to talk like them uh, because it was a it was different from what I had ever experienced. And I, I did a lot of research on the internet into the psychology of these people. Uh, I got involved in some of their chat rooms and you know, would just see how they talked and walked and acted. And, and they just saw the world through a different set of eyes. Mm. Um, an example, and again, I'm not sure with your audience, but, um, over here, and uh, we have a, a thing called Sylvan. It's a, a learning. It's tutoring for your kids. And there was a commercial on Sylvan, and one of the guys had actually videotaped the commercial and just kept watching it over and over again because he was in love with the little boy on the commercial. Now, you and I may have watched it and thought, "Oh, that's a good idea because my my son or my granddaughter needs tutoring." So I'll contact the company, but no, this guy, he was looking at that. I mean, they, they just saw the world differently. And the entire time I was doing this, this investigation, I was always afraid I was going to say the wrong thing that didn't sound, you know, didn't come from their perspective. They, they didn't have the same political views I did. They didn't have the same religious views I did. And so it, it was one of these that, uh, I, I sort of had to be more cautious with that one than than I did any of the other assignments that I did. I mean, I mean, I mean do they have religious beliefs? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. We had one of the guys we convicted was an ordained minister. Oh. Uh, he had, he had actually given me 125 images of child pornography and eight videos of men having sex with boys. So, uh, yeah, it was. It, it, it was different. It, they viewed it. Some of them 
and it, it was it was interesting because they viewed some believed that they were actually boy lovers that they that they were sexually attracted this was their sexual orientation that this is the way they were born others just viewed themselves as kind of perverts and just uh, sort of the slam bam thank you ma'am I want sex with little boys others it was I want the loving relationship I you know, I want to develop this and you saw this you saw some members that that paid for it and just did it others that would go through what we called grooming and they might they might spend months just kind of grooming the child, uh, taking them on camping trips, taking them to events before they actually even approach them about sex. Because in this, in, in this particular organization, we were looking at persuasion predators, not the kind of guy that breaks into your house in the night and snatches your kid out of the, out of the bedroom. Uh, these were men that were trying to develop a relationship and then exploit that relationship. Hmm. It sounds very no, similar, Chris, Bob. It, it, but Chris, just in, in, in answer to you, I mean, my first real meeting, my first face-to-face -face meeting, there were about 35 of these guys, and I, I had called my son, and I said, you know, where's the Palestine? I Just give me a grenade, and let me just go in there and pull the pin on the grenade, and we'll just, I'll do more for society if I kill all of us. Hmm. That's, yeah, that's that, the way I felt. That would be the hard yeah. part is, is is not wanting to attack them. Um, yeah. One one thing that you know I was going to ask Bob is outside outside the fact that they are uh, attracted to you know, or they were attracted to to you know young boys were they fairly f normal functioning members of society or a little bit odd otherwise? You know what, and that's a fascinating question because what when I went into this. Uh, it's it's kind of a longer backstory, but um, what, when I had my first face-to-face -face meeting with these guys, uh, I assumed that it they were all going to look like uh, central casting send me a pervert. I mean, I I assumed that this was going to be the trench coats and the horn-brimmed glasses, and they hung out at a public park and and just threw open their coat and exposed themselves to everybody. And, and when I got to this first meeting, yes, some of them did look like they, you know, were kind of perverts, but there were a lot of normal people. I mean, you know, I know some of this is video. I'm about a two and a half on a scale of 10 when it comes to, but I don't think I look like a pervert. And when I, once I kind of got with the group and began to look at them, it was like, holy crap. I mean, these guys look as normal as I do. I mean, yeah, there were some fat roly poly guys and there were some really athletic guys. We ended up convicting eight members of the group's inner circle. One of them was a personal trainer and was built, you know, he, he could have, he could have been a cover boy on a muscle and fitness magazine, uh, mm -hmm. but some were the fat roly poly kid. So it was hard to, it was actually hard to have a checklist of this is what you look for. Yeah, yeah. Would, would, it's, it's interesting you talk about there about the the uh, the grooming process, Bob, and sort of taking them on camping trips because that was very similar to what I'd read, um, and I'm sure you you'll be aware of. But the the case with Jerry Sandusky up at Penn State, 
where he was the the right. assistant coach and defensive coordinator for many years at Penn State, and just more so for Chris because he doesn't follow American football. He was a Penn State's a massive football program in America, Chris, and he basically had open access to young preteen boys because he was a famous football coach and they used to go to his football camps. He would let them stay over. He would take showers with them. And no one really batted an eyelid because he was in a position of power. So was there was there people within the group that had that? You said obviously the ordained minister would have a certain amount of power within a society or within a group. Was that a, a kind of theme through the inner circle of Nambla? Yeah. Now, again, with, with the men I was dealing with, uh, most of them were high-functioning individuals in society. And, and of course... Uh, you know, it's the whole idea of why do you rob banks? Well, that's because where the money is. And it's it's similar to th- these men would somehow be involved in somewhere where there were children. We had uh, we convicted three special ed teachers. Uh, we had uh, one was a child psychologist. We had a dentist, uh, a, a Boy Scout leader, a big brother. You know, they were they gravitated toward where they had uh access to children so it it wasn't it it kind of wasn't that loner who just stayed hunched down in in his mother's back bedroom in the basement or something i mean these were people that were out there we had a phd psychologist like i said we had a dentist we had teachers that were educated but we had some blue collar people too Mm. and as part of the investigation i corresponded with about 165 members that were in prison. And I dealt with everything from Mensa members to uh, the illiterate. It just ran the whole socioeconomic gamut. As now, you know, with all these people, you know, that, that you, you were dealing with and, you know, the, the gang that you had, uh, or the group that you had infiltrated, Bob, was there one sort of common theme was there something that linked everybody together you know they're all very different but was there one thing that was similarly you know well what i mean obviously what what linked them together was their their love of boys Mm. but we had some that were married some that were openly gay some that were heterosexual but like little boys i mean it it there wasn't a checklist no no, it's just because, but you know, when you mentioned like you know some of them are you know you, you know talking about being loners in their mom's basement or something like that was you know so that, you know that's the kind of the thing that I was you know thinking about is kind of strange people who you know I think we all knew kids when we, when we were growing up um, that you know were a, a bit a bit odd at school you know the guys who would you know yeah. you know you found out they like to throw mice on the road or you know they set fire to bins you know just thing things you were like that's a that's a little bit strange but you know i just i just wondered if there was one kind of common theme where they all kind of losers or, or but you know it doesn't seem like there is it seems like everybody yeah. was completely different like there's nothing that you go oh this guy does this so you know we must watch him i i'm sure it i'm sure it's the same thing over in scotland that you will when the news comes out and everybody thinks oh yeah now now that I look back, I can see where this this was a guy who did this. You know, he was mm. he lived at home with his mother. He was single. He was a school teacher. He never dated. Uh, uh, he he was out of shape. Uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. But again, that's not what 
that that's not what we found at all. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that would be a that would be the the more difficult side of 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 your work would be that side. But was a which one was the most? I say. Uh, cautiously which, which side what you know which uh assignment would have been the you know the most fun or the one that you you, you enjoyed the most well, yeah, I, I i may have misunderstood the question but that was kind of one of the one of the problems and, and before we began this we talked a little bit you were mentioning about the psychology of everything mm. and what's what's really important for an undercover agent is that you have to see the gray I mean, and I think this is true from from any law enforcement perspective. Most of us in law enforcement see black and white. Either you committed the crime or you didn't commit the crime, you know, and those that commit the crime go to jail. Uh, and if you commit the crime, now you go to jail, that that type of attitude. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you see the crime being committed, then we arrest them and, and send them off. But when you're undercover, you're amongst these people that are committing crimes, but you need to see the gray. You can't look at them as a criminal. You have to look at them as a human being and you have to latch on to some decent quality and and keep thinking of that while you sublimate this desire to just want to kill them. And one of the guys we we that I worked with was a, a Ph.D. psychologist was funny. I mean, he just he had me in stitches most of the time. And what was bothersome for me was I didn't want the jury. If, if this were going to go to trial, I didn't want the jury to sit there and think, Oh my gosh, this undercover agent, he just thinks this is so fun. And, and he's laughing all the time and he must just be one of them because he's enjoying this. So that's kind of some that, that, that you have to keep in mind uh, when you're, when you're working these type of investigations. And, and I yeah. always like to say that I try to think of my grandmother on the jury. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want the jury to think I'm just as bad as the bad guys. You know, I yeah. want them to, I, I want them to see the dichotomy, but by the same type, I want the bad guys to accept me as one of them. Yeah. Mm. It's, how does how does that work, Bob? Because I know again you talked, you know, about the the TV image of the Jag lawyer, and obviously we have the TV image of an undercover agent, where you're approached by a gang, and the only way you can join the gang is by committing a crime, for example, whether it's you know shooting someone to become a made guy like in Goodfellas or yeah. whatever it might be. How how do you approach that side of the undercover work, where you're maybe going to have to go in and infiltrate? You know, because when I looked up the notes on, you know, you throw out names like La Cosa Nostra, the Russian mafia, um, some of the crime gangs in LA and the drug gangs. How do you go about sort of getting access to that without stepping over the lines that you obviously have to stay inside as a law enforcement agent? No, that's that's you've you've hit it, Ali. I mean, that's that's kind of the hard part because you can't step over that line, um, and. I was never in that position. Um, you you had the Goodfellas, and you talk about the Goodfellas case, but uh, you know, like uh, Joe Pistone, who played Donnie Brasco. I mean, he was right there, a mob member. You know, he was an Italian FBI agent, and he posed as as a mob guy. 
and you, you just have to avoid, you, know, you just can't kill someone to maintain your credibility. Uh, Jay Dobbins was infiltrated the Hell's Angels, and there were there were things that that he could do and he couldn't do, but you just can't do it as as a law enforcement officer. So yet you, you have to watch that, and uh, that's that's part of the that's part of what makes it difficult is is knowing how close you can get to that line without crossing it, mm. and you have to know in advance how far you can go. And kind of in your mind, have this idea that, okay, if they ask me to do this, what's my response? If they want me to do that, how do I respond to it? So that it's almost like you've already rehearsed this scene and it just comes to you naturally without sitting there trying to trying to talk about it. I never like I never pose as a drug user. I was a drug dealer. And so I, I didn't have to be. I didn't have to sit there and do the line with the bad guys because, hey, I'm I'm here to sell. I'm here to make money. I'm not here to, to do drugs with you. you know? Most bad guys don't want to be friends with you. If, if they think they're going to make money off of you, that's that's what they want to do. Mm. And they're not looking to make friends. They're they're looking to make money. So that was that was the one thing that I saw that kind of differs from what you necessarily see in Hollywood. I, in any of my undercover operations, uh, I, I had some service that they wanted and okay. whether it was the money to buy the drugs, whether it was a warehouse where they can store their stolen goods, uh, you know, so I, I, I had something that they wanted that didn't necessarily rely on a, a 24 seven friendship that we're just going to go bar hopping and, uh, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. So, what would be the cover? Um, you know, when you are not with, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, assignment you were on, uh, Bob. What, what would be the cover for your, you know, normal life? How, how do you, how do you go about that? How do you, you know, when you go home at night to, to the wife, you know, what was the cover for all this stuff? Um, yeah, it, Chris, it just depended. I mean, um, you know, I. In one case, I posed as a screenwriter and I, I had access to a, a studio and I had a friend who worked at the studio and he'd just leave me passes at the front gate. I'd have the mob guys meet me in the, in the cafeteria there on the studio. So it was, it was kind of fun because they never wanted to come to my house. They wanted to meet, meet me for lunch at the studio and we'd sit there and the stars people they'd recognize would walk by and it was, it was kind of funny because I, I always like to tell this story that the, the actors they didn't want to admit they didn't know who you were so somebody would walk by and if hey chris and Allie, how you doing buddy you know great job last night on tv oh you know thank you thanks for I'm back at you buddy because <laughs> they would never <laughs> when you're on the lot like that it was never it was never one of these, uh, I don't know who you are. I'm not going to talk to you. It yeah. wasn't like being encountering them on the street. Uh, so we had, I, I kind of had some fun times with that. But it, a lot of times, Chris, for me, it was just quick hits. Uh, I worked gangs in South Central Los Angeles. I was white, working uh, black street gangs. But I had an old beat up pickup truck and I was buying drugs. And I just, I would get in and get out. Hey, I'm here to buy the drugs. Uh, here's the money. 
they'd give me the drugs and I said, I got to rush back to my people. And then they weren't interested in pulling you in and let's sit down and and smoke some crack cocaine and have a couple beers and all that. They weren't, they weren't looking for that. How is, um, you know, cause you know, when I hear South Central LA, you know, I think of, uh, you know, boys in the hood and all this kind of stuff. So yep. how, what, you know, what is the reality of, of those kind of areas? You know, is, is it like that? One of the, one of the funniest lines to come out of, of any of my undercover arrests, uh, we had arrested 13 gang members, uh, all part of this drug buy program. And the one was the head of the Backstreet Crips, which was, a. Uh, I guess a subdivision of the overall mm. Crips and he'd sold me drugs on five different occasions. And, uh, finally when we had him arrested and he's sitting down there on the bench with his head down and his hand behind his uh, cuff behind him. And I said, you had to suspect a white guy coming down here to buy drugs. And he shook his head and he goes, man, I talk so with the pole and my boys and we figured the police should be too stupid to send a white guy down here. so so sometimes it was just a matter of uh you know i kind of joke that you wouldn't you wouldn't have me play me in the movie because Mm. you you wouldn't you wouldn't believe a white guy buying drugs in in the middle of gang territory if you were watching on tv i I infiltrate, infiltrated a couple Asian gangs, um, not to be a gang member, but I was a white guy that had what they needed. And, you know, you, you would have gotten Jackie Chan to play that role. You wouldn't yeah. have gotten Bruce Willis to play that role. So, I mean, do, do, you know, when you, when you're applying, do they look for um, people who don't stand out? You know, you're people who are, can blend into a crowd really easily. Is that yeah, something that they no, look for? I, I, I say that God made me pure vanilla. I mean, you know, I, there's, there's nothing. I, I have a face that nobody remembers and everybody thinks I kind of look like somebody, but they can't quite place who it is. And so <laughs> it was just, you know, it, I, you're, you're not, you know, I'm trying to think, well, you know, I guess Tom Cruise or something, you know, you're not, Tom Cruise, you're going to remember Tom Cruise if he comes in and buy drugs or he, yeah. he just doesn't look. I just look kind of, eh, kind of normal and you know, nothing. Yeah, you're just just average white man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And <laughs> the best in the best way possible, of course. <laughs> average white man, white um, privilege. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that makes sense. It's, it's funny because I had I had not that I'm not an average white man by any stretch, but um, not that you can tell at the minute. But my hair is very ginger, especially when it grows out. Um, and I played rugby growing up, and I had long ginger hair at the time, like shoulder length, proper. Like rock star, well not rock star, but rock and roll, heavy metal style, long hair. And when I played rugby, my coach always said, you're going to have to be the cleanest player on the pitch because the referee will 100% remember you. <laughs> Do you yeah. know, there's no there's no hiding places when you're six foot three with long ginger hair. <laughs> Everyone goes, oh, that's you. And you the referee will remember you. If you're caught up in any kind of incident, the referee's going to remember it was you. And even if you're pulling someone out of that fight, they're still going to remember you were there at the point of the fight. And the next time anything kicks off and you're in the vicinity, you're the one that's getting ejected from the game. 
Exactly. Exactly. Well, <laughs> and I mean, it, it, it's almost the same, you know, the best disguise for a bank robber is a bandaid across his nose because that's all the, the teller, the bank teller focuses. Oh, I, I don't remember what he looked like, but he had a, he had a bandaid across the, his nose, you know, and, and then when the guy leaves the bank, he rips the Band-Aid off. They never do find it. So, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. that makes that does make sense, that little, ba- yeah, little bandage and you focus on it. It does make sense, yeah. Sounds so silly. And you would, you know, if somebody asked me to go rob a bank and said, here, stick this in your nose. No, but why would I, I want to wear a mask. Uh, but yeah, that would make, yeah, make sense. It makes sense. It's so obvious. Um, I, I did a couple. I, I would put like a scar down my face and... I know that they, that's all they focused on was the scar. And, and there was one that I had a, a swastika <laughs> tattoo on my neck um, for a couple of days on, a, on an assignment. And I know they just focused on that swastika tattoo. They couldn't have told, they couldn't have identified my face, but they, they would just say, yeah, he had a, a swastika on his neck. So, you know, little things like that are, are probably more important than the fake mustache and and the mm. you know eyeglasses and the wig and all that no i have to ask bob what was the what was the swastika for what was what was that you know what uh it was actually a, a pornography case we were, yeah. we had a uh, we, we had a, <laughs> a, a we had identified a guy that was that had child pornography and i was going in as a uh, heating and air conditioning repair man and just knocked on the door and you know had the big swastika and had the work belt went in and was able to to deal with him for a little bit and then yeah so that that you know that was that you know because i you know you say you're a swastika i would instantly say you know it's you know something to do with a white supremacy group or something like yeah. that so so yeah. the whole point of the swastika would be so that they would go yeah yeah guy that's because it's so noticeable that you know that's what they're focusing on rather than you know what you were up to they just go this guy's got us you know is that the whole idea just to focus on that one thing yeah i mean it's 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 the same thing with a magician you know you watch you watch this hand over here when it's this hand over here that's that's doing everything so you Mm. kind of get them you kind of get them focused on that my my last three undercover assignments and i was working three cases at the same time but i had a cane i i had a crutch and and that's people just knew that I was this handicapped guy. I couldn't be a cop because I, you know, I had this really bad medical condition. So they just they focused on they kind of focused on the cane rather than, you know, because yeah. I, 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 I I'm a yeah. little different now, but I always kind of thought I looked like a cop. I smelled like a cop. You know, it was like and but it's like, yeah, you can't be a cop if you got a cane and you got a bad leg. So. Yeah. In the Nambla case, that's what I, I used a cane. Uh, I I had an arm crutch and and it was that that was sort of offsetting it. They just figured, oh, he, he can't be a cop. He may be an informant, but he's not a cop because he's he's got this medical condition. I'm now going to look yeah. at the world in a completely different way now. <laughs> I know. It's kind of blown my mind a little bit, that whole idea of the flourish. And then yeah. look over here for the other hands, the one that you should have been looking yeah, at. Yeah, it makes me massively fascinating. A lot of things. Um, but yeah, so 
the you know I think uh, you know like most guys sort of mine and Ali's mine and Ali's age the you know the 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 mob stuff would be super interesting was was that uh you know was uh, well, I mean I would imagine with something like the mafia it would have to be a long term thing but you know were you short term were you in and out or uh, that was that was a nine month investigation mm-hmm. and again you know I'm I'm white Anglo Saxon. My, my ancestors are from Scotland, so oh. I'm not going to go in as 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 an Italian. Uh, that story, we set it up. Um, we had a uh, an informant, a guy that we had wrapped up. We we arrested him for extortion, and he agreed to introduce an undercover agent. And and essentially, I was a screenwriter. I was selling drugs. But in order to sell drugs, I needed to have protection. So you pay a street tax to, to the mafia. And then okay. by, you have, by you paying the street tax, now you're protected and no one's going to bother you. So uh, that was, that's yeah. how we originally began. Uh, I, was, I was selling drugs in Hollywood and needed protection, started paying a street tax, and then came back at him with, hey, my guy got bumped off. I don't have... A, a source of cocaine and without the source i can't pay the street tax do you have somebody that i can buy drugs from well they entered they introduced me to a mob guy that was selling cocaine so we were uh, we were able to make numerous fairly large amounts of, of drug purchases so that i was they were making money off me buying the drugs from them at a profit and then they were still charging me the street tax. So mm. that was uh, that was that was how that That's that particular case went down. And it it just kept it it just kept going and going and, and and expanding beyond anything that we really wanted. We we ended up taking out fifteen mob guys mm. in, in that particular investigation. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. But I loved Chris to answer your question. Really, I loved the mob guys. I mean, they were the most fascinating people and and they told stories and uh it was just it was just fun times and and again i know you you said about half your audiences um, in the united states and probably because you watch movies you would know this anyway but to be in the mob you have to make your bones and usually you have to kill somebody in order to be invited into the la cosa nostra Mm. and there was one guy that that i was dealing with and uh, we knew he was a made guy and I, and he was much older. I mean, he was probably in his late sixties, early seventies. And uh, I was in my early thirties. And, and one day I just asked, I said, I said, Mike, you know, you're a, you're a made guy. And he kind of shook his head. And I said, so, so you had to kill somebody. Uh, who'd you kill? And he looked at me and he, and he had a real guttural voice. He goes, uh, uh, is there a statute of limitations on murder? And I, <laughs> and I said, uh, I, I said, I don't know. My, I'm not a lawyer. I don't think so. And he goes, next question. So he wasn't going to answer. But, but I'll tell you a, a funny story about that. And I know both of you are martial artists, but uh, I, I boxed and then, I wasn't very good with my feet, but I was okay with my hands. And so I, I enjoyed boxing. And 
uh, I used to watch it on ESPN and this guy was, you know, older and didn't quite understand cable television. This was back in the, in the eighties and didn't quite understand cable television. And he had been a professional boxer uh, in his early years. And I was watching ESPN and enjoying the fights and uh, come to, I go meet this guy in a motel room and he's got the ESPN on and it's the same fights that I saw the night before. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, no, this kid's a pretty good fighter. He's, he's, he's good. I said, Mike, look at the back of his neck. It's all red. It's tensed up. He's got, he's, he's going to lose it. I, I, I bet he doesn't even make it through the next round. Well, I knew he'd been knocked out <laughs> the next round. So, <laughs> three minutes later, the guy's on the mat and this guy thinks I am just, you know, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread because I have predicted this knockout and I was able to spot things in this, this boxer that obviously no one else saw. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm a big yeah. boxing, big boxing fan as well. Uh, you know, did a little bit of amateur boxing. So I have a big, big boxing fan as well. Um, but yeah, so, um, so yeah, well, I, I'm not sure why I don't, I don't know why, um, the, the, you know, the, you know, the mob seems, you know, it, you know, to us, like, you know, watching films and stuff, cool, you know, you know, because we, we, you know, we think of, you know, John Gotti and all these kind of, yeah. you know, real slick mobsters. Um, I don't, I don't know why, because I don't think it's still, you know, uh, you know, is it still a thing? Is, you know, is Italian mafia really still a thing in America? Is that, is it still going? Yeah. It's, it's pretty weak now. Yeah. Uh, most of the, most of the, the big people have been taken out. I, I mean, I think the, the FBI and the Department of Justice and other federal agencies deserve a huge pat on the back for how they've been able to, to really go after the mob and take care of them. I mean, now in the United States, probably the bigger problem is some of the Russian organized crime or MS-13 Know, these other groups that have, mm. have risen to the top in terms of sheer danger. And, and in some respects, that's, it's kind of what's wrong. You know, the old mob, the Italian mafia, they kind of, they had a sense of honor and this is how things run and rule. I, I don't know if you know the name Debbie Reynolds, but she was an actress mm. and owned a casino Carrie in Fisher's Las mom. Vegas. I'm sorry, what? Sorry, Carrie Fisher's mom. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. And, uh, and I saw her interviewed one day and she was talking about when the mob ran Las Vegas. And she said, you know, the thing was nobody got killed that wasn't supposed to. And it was kind of, it was kind of true that you know, mm. the, the mafia, the modern mob didn't do drive by shootings like the gang members did. They, they didn't blow up uh, casinos or restaurants like the terrorists do, uh, you mm. know, it was, we're, we're going to target this one guy and we're going to kill him. And, and he deserved to be killed by their standards because of what he did. So. Yeah. 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 That's a uh, um, similar, similar to what we had over here. Wasn't it Chris? We had in, in Glasgow, there was quite a strong, a relatively strong gangland scene with the Thompson clan, who Arthur was Thompson, known as the yeah. God, yeah, Arthur Thompson, he was known as the Godfather of Scotland. And it was very much the same, you know, they, they um, you know, they didn't attack women, they didn't attack children. 
it wasn't indiscriminate violence. It was violence against other criminal families that were moving in on their turf. Um, and they had a lot of problems, just with you talking about terrorism, Bob, when the, the IRA and the Irish moved into Glasgow because the IRA were bombing pubs that British people like servicemen, women, uh, police officers drank in. But a lot of those pubs paid protection money to the Thompson gangland enforcers. And then you had a bit of trouble between the IRA terrorists and the gangland, you know, what would have been seen as the mob um, in Scotland. And they had that same ethos where, you know, we're not going to come after you, but if you cross us, then we're going to put you in the ground. And yeah. as you say, it's changed so much over the last years that the big crime bosses have, are, are long dead now and it's fractured into hundreds of little gangs of six, seven, eight, nine, ten. you know, I use the term men loosely, that just fight and cause trouble everywhere. So is it is that kind of going a similar line yeah. then with the Italian mafia in America? I, I think so, yeah. And you had, there was a sense of honor with, with the Italians. You, know, you never went after a family, you went after the guy. Well, now the family is, is fair game for, for most mm. of these, these groups. Yeah, 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 it's 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 a, it's a, a sad state of affairs when you when you're looking at modern life and you 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 wish you still had the Italian mafia. <laughs> oh, I, miss, I really miss having those uh, those Italian mafia guys. <laughs> but we 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 had that one situation when I was working gangs. And we we literally wiped out a street gang. I mean, we we set up a drug program and we arrested the top leaders. And then the next week, another gang came in and took over the neighborhood. So it was kind of like, you know, well, who do you want to run a neighborhood? Do you want this gang or that gang? But you know, we a, thought we were doing the right thing by taking out this gang. And the next thing we know is someone else had moved in and taken over, to take over mean, the neighborhood. So. This, 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 this is essentially what... Um, you know what what we did in Iraq, right? We went, oh, let's get rid of Saddam Hussein, and then all of a sudden we go, ah, shit, what have we yeah. done? Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like we should have just kept that guy there and, and not created all this mess. But you know, that's that's you know that's uh, the mistakes that human being. You know what's amazing is when you see these things. Um, you know, even just speaking to yourself. You know, when we spoke to Robin Drake before. You you're speaking to somebody who was infiltrating. You know, major organizations, um, you know, whether it was, you know, criminal or, you know, pedophile gangs or, or whatever it was. And, and you, you speak to a guy like yourself and you, oh, you know, Bob's just, Bob's just a guy. You know, and you, you look at these, you know, when you look at, you know, right now with, you know, the, the coronavirus and all this stuff and, and you see people making, um, you know, governments all around the world, you know, I know our government doing, doing things and they, they make these decisions and you think, why have you done that? And then it's not until you you realize that they're just people. They're not because you have these ideas of you know somebody in the FBI. They must be something other. There must be something different to me because they're in the FBI. And then you speak to you and you go, oh, oh Bob's just Bob. He's a cool guy. And you know we have these weird perceptions of um, you know whether it's a president or, or or the prime minister over here or you know we have these weird perceptions of people. And then you speak to them and you go, oh. Okay, she's just a person. I don't know where I'm going with this little rant I'm on, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 interesting to speak to, you know, yourself, and then you know when 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 you speak to, you know, as you're talking about the 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 maid guy, you know, having a little joke about clearly he killed somebody, but he's making a joke about it, and it's because you have these ideas of 
a, a made guy being very serious and uh you know you 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 think of godfather and and you know the film you know sitting in his chair and it's kind of dark and um it's interesting to hear that even at that level they're still just people well i think from a mob standpoint that's what the sopranos showed <laughs> you know they yeah. in the sopranos they, they had the problem the guy had to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist i mean he had family problems he couldn't control his kids and but they we all have the same problems it's just mm. we either go about the solutions differently or our nine to five job is different but we, we still have a, a family to take care of and children to raise and and, and all of that so, yeah i mean talking you know to but him. chrissy kind of get back i'm going to change the subject a little bit but okay i i just enjoyed screwing with people and that's that's what made <laughs> that's what made working undercover fun and yeah uh this is some of my scottish roots but um i i had three undercover names so i always i always kept bob because i didn't want you to see me on the street and say oh hey hey chuck how are you doing and the, the bad guy says, well, I thought you said your name was Bob. So I always kept Bob. My, my first undercover name was Bob Bourne. And it was after, after the Bourne identity when the books came out. Well, then my, okay. my second undercover name was, was Robert William Wallace from Braveheart. And <laughs> in, in the Nambla case, at one point, they'd, they'd asked me my name because I, I went by Robert. And I said, Robert Wallace. And, I said, and it was Robert W. Wallace. And he said, well, what's the W? And I said, Williams, you mean like Braveheart? And I said, yeah. I said, you know what, in the end of the movie, when they cut up all his body parts, I said, my family got the penis. And they just thought, they just started laughing. I thought that was so great. And then my third undercover uh, name was Robert David Webb, which David Webb was Jason Bourne's real name in the Bourne identity. So I was just, it was always something there. And, and I love to play music. Um, I would have music playing in the car. The bad guys never figured it out, but I would have jailhouse rock playing Folsom prison blues. I mean, if it, if it's a, if, if it is a prison theme, it's playing in my car when the bad guys are there. And I, just, uh, I ended up doing a, a huge weapons deal. It was really a $60 million shoulder fire missile deal. Um, and when the bad guy, there were six or seven times when the bad guy got into my car. There's a country Western singer. He just died this past year, Charlie Daniels. And mm -hmm. he's, if you, if you know, he did the devil went down to Georgia was his most famous yeah. song, but he had a song called uneasy rider. And it's about this long haired hippie that goes into a, a redneck bar and he gets confronted because he's a, uh, a hippie. And he, he makes, he makes up this story. So I had the song cued to this line. So there were six or seven times when the bad guy got into my car. And when I turned the ignition on the first line you hear on every tape is this. And it goes, don't you know what this man's a spy? He's an undercover agent for the FBI. And that was, <laughs> that was from the song. And, he, you know, they, they never caught on and it was just, you know, do you think? Do you think that was just too obvious? Like, well, again, and and I think part of it for me, and and I think you'll find this with a lot of guys that particularly work undercover. That first time you go undercover, 
I mean, it is such an adrenaline rush. And it's, it's like the drug addict that keeps trying to get that initial hit, that, that first heroin hit. And now they're chasing the dragon to get that, that hit. And for me, it was sort of trying to chase that adrenaline dra dragon. So I would just see how far I could push it. And then, you know, when I got right to the edge and maybe it's a little too dangerous, back off a little bit. But it's just, just to see how far I could go and, and, and do that. I, there was a part of a language barrier, but I was dealing with some, some Chinese and I had my recording device in this day planner and I would just call it my recorder. And, and I was, I was handicapped. I had the crutch and I just tell the guy, you know, I would put this day planner on the table and that's a recording device right there on the table as we're talking. And then I'd get up and I'd say, Hey, John, don't forget to bring my recorder. He goes, Oh, okay. I'll bring your recorder. And so he's actually carrying the recording device in his hand. And we're walking back to my car or, or whatever, but it was just, let's just see how far we can push it. That's amazing. Crazy. That's amazing. How, how at any point during our lives, we could just be getting completely bullshit and we, <laughs> it would seem <laughs> obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like those those bits at the end of the movies where they reveal the stage by stage, and you're like, "How have we not seen this all the way through the movie?" And you suddenly, all the pieces fall into place. Yeah, that'd yeah. be. Uh, I, I like yeah. that one about the length in the song, though. That amused me greatly. Yeah, that is That's amazing. A, yeah. I like that. I do yeah, like yeah. that. So, uh, what, yeah. One of the things you said, sorry, one of the things you said right at the start, Bob, was you scored a zero in the CIA personality yeah. test. But now, ironically, you've played about eight or nine different personalities since then. So yeah. do you think that was potentially something the FBI saw that, you know, the whatever personality test the CIA gave didn't suit them, but actually you were perfectly suited to this role? Or, or did you decide that? How did that kind of, how did that play out? Okay, I, the, the, the personality test that the CIA gave, it was one, uh, if you had a zero personality, you could live on a deserted island for the rest of your life and be content. And a 10 had to be constantly surrounded by people. And, okay. and I kind of skewed my answers because uh, I just thought, you know, like SAS or something, they're going to drop me in behind enemy lines and I'll stay there for a couple months and then kill the third world dictator. And then they snatch me out with a uh, helicopter. And what, what they were looking for was people that would just go to embassy parties and sidle up to the, the foreign dignitaries and convince them to cooperate and provide information to the United States. And what I've, what I've, it finally dawned on me that I have a zero personality in the sense that I don't really need friends, but I'm not opposed to making friends. So it, it was, it was easy for me in my undercover capacity to be nice to people, to talk to them, to interchange with them. Uh, and in many respects, it was good because I didn't develop a close personal relationship because I don't need friends. But in my undercover capacity, I, I could befriend you. Uh, but it, was, it wasn't anything that, oh, I'm feeling horrible that you're going to go to prison for what you're doing, mm. anything like that, because I, I really didn't need you. I mean, I, I, I somewhat say that I, I I'm a Judas. I mean, every person I ever befriended, I betrayed. And, um, was that ever hard? 
Was that was that ever difficult? Was there any any point where you you became close to somebody and had to you know give yourself a little reality check? Say, oh, actually, this guy's going to jail for this, this, or you know, he's he's buying you know weapons. You know, Chris, um, I I looked at it that I wasn't the judge and jury. I was just the investigator, and mm. I'm not the person that's your actions have violated the law and someone's going to determine how much time you should get as a result of that. Hmm. I'll go back to my, my very first undercover assignment. Um, my wife was pregnant at the time with our second child and the Bureau and all its infinite wisdom decided to transfer me in the middle of this case to another division. And we were trying to play out this case, which turned out to be a, a very real good case but uh the the bad guy that i was dealing with who was he was a mob associate and was one of the top art thieves in the united states ended up we, we were sitting in the car one day and i knew i was being transferred and i just and and he knew that i had a wife he knew i was married he knew my wife was pregnant and i and i i made up this story but i just said hey my you know, my wife's pregnant yeah, and she's got this, this medical condition. I'm not sure what it is, but it's something like inverted placentae and she's having trouble. She may not be able to keep the baby and there's a doctor back in Indianapolis. And so we're going to fly, we're going to drive back to Indianapolis and she's going to be treated by this doctor. Now this is all a lie, you know, all the medical stuff is a lie other than my wife's pregnant. And so we're sitting in this in this car and I'm talking about this and I'm kind of getting teary eyed talking about my wife and saving the baby and all this. And he leans over and he, he pats me on my thigh and he goes, have you ever thought a prayer? And it's like, Holy crap. I mean, this guy, you know, this guy is a righteous drug dealer, art thief, uh, ex con. And he wants to talk about prayer. He said, there's a religion called Christian science and you can call them up on the phone and, and they can, uh, they'll pray for you over the phone and they can heal you. And, and he paused and he says, I'm seriously thinking of taking up this religion after I give up stealing. <laughs> and <it was> like, <laughs> wow. what? <laughs> what? But, but I say to kind of to answer your question, Chris, nobody in the FBI ever, expressed any concern for my wife uh this guy really was concerned for my wife and and part of that was because i was buying his stolen art and and all that but still there was there was that concern uh but i had to keep in mind that yeah the guy's the guy's going to end up going to prison for what he did and he did end up going to prison but um that's so interesting. Do you, do you think that was because, like, underneath the actual being an international criminal, he was actually a nice person, or do you think it was purely because he wanted to get on your, you know, you know, keep on your good side? No, I look. I I think there's there's good in all of us, and and you know we can we're all flawed individuals, and, and some of it we don't act out in a criminal capacity, but uh, we used to joke in the FBI that, you know, other than a serial killer, he's really a pretty nice guy. (laughs) And, 
It was, it was kind of true. You mean you had, everybody's got the good thing. And that as an undercover agent, you've got to latch on to the good. If, if you see everybody as just a hundred percent bad, a, a, a criminal, a bad guy is like a dog. I mean, a dog can smell your fear. He knows when you're afraid of him. And that's the same way, a, you know, bad guys know if you hate them or so you one find the, that good feature and that's what you latch on yeah one of the most interesting things is uh, i've had the i guess displeasure of of meeting uh you know a few bad people um and it was all through you know cars um you know a, a car garage that i used to work at a, a lot of people used to come in and you know they would race cars this is a way that they would legitimize their money you know they used to you know street race and all this kind of stuff uh, and this is how they would do sort of legitimize where the money was coming from it was you know spending dirty money on on you know cheering up cars and, and go racing and, and they would win money this way but, but every one of them who were you know people that you, you'd heard like you'd read the name in the, in the newspaper or, or heard on news and you know you meet these people they were all very charming they were all, you know, to me, they were all super nice. And it was like, is he actually a bad, you know, it's, it was a very bizarre thing because I never met, I never met, obviously they were terrible people, but they were never not nice to me. It was, I always found that extremely strange. To me, they were always, hello, shake your hand, how are you? I always found that fascinating, really interesting. How that worked? No, and... And I, and I think that's true. I mean, I think it's, it's so easy um, for us to just categorize, okay, he's, he's this, so he must be that. You know, he's a drug dealer, so he must be a horrible parent or, mm. or, or whatever. And yeah. it's, just, it's just not always true. Yeah. Oh, one thing I want to go back to, uh, Bob, is, um, is Scotland. What, do you know where the, where the ancestors were from or...? Have you looked into it? You know, we have a picture in our house of, of some relative that has a, I think it's called Little Cyplin or something like, I, I don't know. It's, it was a farm that he had and it was a picture my mother had and when she died. We have the picture and said, now we have it in our Cyplin, I think. Is what it's called. I don't. You should have told me ahead of time. I would have researched it for the for the podcast. But... <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's always uh, good. So, so, such a you know, I guess a lot of Americans have have their ancestry in Scotland. Um, but yeah, have you have you have you been over? Have you you, you came no, over? No, no, I haven't. Uh, yeah, you should definitely visit. It's uh, a quite a nice quite a nice place to come and. Uh, you know, it's not it's not like Disneyland. You know, we don't have roller coasters and and uh, you know all the cheese all the cheese you can eat on a, a mobility scooter. But you know, there's some nice things to see. <laughs> well, what Wood says we have we have real castles. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We we don't have Imagineer castles. We've got real ones. Yeah. I may take you up on that. I know my wife would like to come. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. If you if you know if you if you uh, if you end up here and you need. To, um, you know, a tour guide, me and Ali would be delighted to, to show you around a little bit, um, you know, should that happen. Um, but yeah, I think we've, uh, 
yeah, we're kind of heading on to that hour mark that we we planned in. Just before we do start winding it up, Bob, do you have any social media or any website that we can send our listeners to if they want to find out more about you? Yeah, if you go to to bobhamer.net, so that's B-O-B-H-A-M-E-R.net, and uh, I've I've written a few books, and so go to those, buy those books. My wife will appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, so that's, that's what I, and the, the, the first book I wrote was called the last undercover and it, it chronicles the in details that the NAMBLA investigation. So if somebody wants to learn more about that, but then I also throw in a dozen other cases in which I was the undercover agent. So it kind of gives you, kind of gives you some insights into what it's like to, to work undercover in the FBI and the good and the bad and everything. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, Ali will grab one of those, I believe. Um, Ali's a reader, I don't, and I, you know, I'll wait for the documentary. <laughs> Ali will read the book. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll I'll wait. I'll wait till Tom Cruise plays Bob Hamer, and then uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll watch. Um, but yeah, it's been uh, it's been extra- you know, it's one of those ones where uh, the first time you know I had to glance, you know, I, I don't know what time it is because I don't have any way to look. So I glanced at my watch, and it was approaching an hour, and I, you know. I always feel like it's been a good conversation when an hour's went by and you, you feel like, ah, shit, we need to get Bob back on. This has been, this has been, uh, it's been really interesting. So, uh, well, thanks guys. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you yeah, very much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's uh, been, been super interesting. You know, 100%. We, we could quite easily do another, another couple of hours, but, um, you know, it's getting close to bedtime in, in Scotland here, so uh, I'm up early to swim. Unfortunately, That's, it's, um, it's your bedtime. It's my nap time. Works out well. Works out well. Cool. Well, let's start winding it down. But Bob, genuinely, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It has been genuinely very, very interesting. You've had some fantastic stories as well. You're clearly a natural storyteller that you picked up over your time, um, talking to all those mob guys potentially. But it's been good. So, Bob Hamer, episode sixty-six. Thank you very much for your time this evening and this afternoon. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Bob. Silly Goose Gang Podcast.